Hey, this is Annie. And Samantha. And welcome to Stuff I'll Never Told You, a production of iHeartRadio. So today's episode, I'm very excited to present to you. And it's actually, um, it was a listener that got in touch with us and facilitated this whole thing. And we'll get more into that in a second. But we're going to be talking about sex and gender-based violence, or SGBV, in the Democratic Republic of Congo or the DRC. And a trigger warning for discussion of sex and gender-based violence, sexual assault, and suicidality. And um, this one is so valuable and worth listening to, but though the topics that we discuss with our guest in this one are are very intense. Um, right. So just keep in mind your mental health when choosing to listen or not listen or what time. Because, you know, sometimes you're just not in a good place right now, but you might be later. Right. Just want to put that out there. And just to put it out there, our guests are really optimistic. Yes. In such dire circumstances, it seems. And they put a lot of positivity in what they're talking about mm-hmm. as well. So it is... It is heavy, but at the same time, it is still hopeful. Yes, absolutely. And it is not all bad at all. And so, okay, this was a suggestion from a listener named Rebecca who volunteers with uh, the nonprofit organization Global Outreach Doctors. And she said, I'm going to use her words now, this organization, quote, deploys volunteer medical doctors and nurses, mental health professionals, midwives, and integrative health professionals like trauma-trained acupuncturists, to high-need, low-resource global regions affected by natural disasters, refugee crises, war zones, and famine, such as the Democratic Republic of Congo, Kenya, Ethiopia, Bangladesh, Iraq, Nepal, Lesbos, and the Syrian border. She went on, the organization just completed an assessment mission dealing with gender-based violence in the Democratic Republic of Congo. The DRC has been labeled by several organizations, including the UN, as, quote, one of the worst places in the world to be a woman. During focus groups in the assessment of current medical capabilities in the eastern part of the country, the Godox assessment team found that mental health care for victims of sexual and gender-based violence in the DRC is severely lacking. According to the WHO, as of 2016, there were only 0.08 psychiatrists and 0.5 psychiatric nurses per 100,000 people in the DRC are less than 65 psychiatrists and 405 psychiatric nurses in a country of 78 million people. So Rebecca put us in touch with Coco Tang, the Goat Docs VP of Planning and Logistics, and Kim Spray, BSN, RNCN, who are both on the assessment team. Before we get into that, we want to do a brief rundown of the situation there. Officially established as a Belgian colony in 1908, what was then the Republic of Congo gained independence in 1960. The region has since experienced political and social unrest and instability, violence and periods of civil war, and millions have been displaced. Rape and sexual violence are frequently employed against women and violence as a method of control, intimidation, and humiliation. So for most survivors, justice isn't really an option. The perpetrators range from soldiers to teachers to neighbors, and partly because of that, most women and girls don't report it. Those that do might be cast out from their homes and families. And on one day in November 2012, hundreds were raped, and schools are frequent targets. According to Congolese women's groups, things like an ineffective justice system, poor governance, and women's inferior social position 
all play into the sexual violence in the DRC. And while it is underreported, the numbers we do have are disturbing. Right. Recent obtained statistics revealed that about 1,100 cases of sexual violence are documented each month in various health zones, which amounts to an average of 36 victims a day. And the most affected population is comprised of girls aged between 10 to 17, although 10% of the victims are less than 10 years old. Congolese women constitute 53% of the DRC population. Their visibility and contribution to food security for the survival and running of the Congolese society is undeniable and internationally recognized. However, studies and recent investigations show that the position of Congolese women in several domains of national life remains low in comparison with men. Access of women to decision-making tables as well as to national economical resources and production factors remains very limited. The situation has deteriorated in latter years with the negative effects of wars in repetition to the current persistent insecurity. In fact, 61.2% of Congolese women live underneath the poverty threshold against 51.3% of men, while 44% of women cannot attain economical timeliness. And furthermore, in the DRC, the situation of gender-based violence, particularly domestic violence on women and young girls, is very worrying. Collected national data on various forms of violence against women demonstrates how it strongly correlates with the underdevelopment. In conflict-battered DRC, gender-based violence, including sexual violence, has reached epidemic levels. In 2018 alone, close to 26,800 cases were registered, but many more have not been reported for fear of retaliation because of the limited monitoring and reporting systems in place, which don't cover all affected areas in the country, and because of security and access constraints. Humanitarian partners have been advocating for more funds to be able to provide survivors with post-rape kits within 72 hours and safe spaces where they can get dedicated psychosocial support. And the 2019 Humanitarian Response Plan requires $1.7 billion to reach 9 million people. Of those, 5.7 million people require protection services. To date, the appeal remains only 12% funded. And we can't forget the consequences beyond the trauma of rape, like dropping out of school, pregnancy, forced marriage, STIs, things like that. And just so you know, early marriage is a common practice, and an estimated 74% of women between 15 and 19 years of age are married, and mostly in the rural area. The legal minimum age of marriage is 15 for women and 18 for men, and because of this, in the more rural areas, girls as young as 13 are forced into marriages in order to provide for their families. So clearly, this is something we should be talking about, but it's one thing reading the statistics, and it's another thing being on the ground talking to those who are impacted. We talked with two amazing women, Coco Tang and Kimberly Spray. Seriously, their resumes... (laughs) It's a novel. (laughs) Outstanding, astounding um, about what they experienced when they went on an assessment mission around sex and gender-based violence in the DRC. And we're going to get right into that. But first, we're going to take a quick break forward from our sponsor. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. So let's let our guests introduce themselves. My name is Coco. I'm a paramedic. I'm currently the operations director for Global Outreach Doctors. Um, I also work with a few other different NGOs. I usually practice overseas, so I'm just getting out of my Afghanistan contract. I'm on my way to Norway uh, before I go back to the U.S., and then I'll throw the ball over to Kim. 
Hi, yeah. Um, my name is Kim, and I'm an emergency nurse by training, volunteer with Global Outreach Doctors, and have a little bit of experience working in um, West Africa as well. Yeah, you both were kind enough to send along your resumes, and they were super impressive. They were very impressive. It made me feel very, very... um. And not accomplished or something. I'm just gonna leave it at that. <laughs> um, but how did you how did you get into this line of work? So I first became an emergency medical technician when I was in undergrad, um, partly because both my very Asian, very Chinese parents are MD PhDs and wanted me to be a doctor. So I had to have some kind of exposure to medicine, but also because being an EMT paid better than other minimum wage college jobs. So that's what I did. And then when I got my Born and Fulbright uh, scholarship and fellowships to the Middle East, I was living in Jordan. And then I was doing research on the Syrian refugees and the ISIS issue. So I was working in the Syrian refugee camps. And then someone heard that I have medical skills. So I was like, do you want to volunteer for the border medevacs? And I was like, sure. And that's how I kind of got started. And then I walked out of um, sort of that experience, realizing that there are these huge international crises that I can be a part of. And then that winter, the Typhoon Haiyan hit the Philippines. Um, So then I immediately signed up to volunteer there. And then as soon as I graduated, I went to Sierra Leone um, at the height of the Ebola crisis to do this community outreach thing. And then it just kind of snowballed from there. I think Kim can attest to this too. Like once you kind of meet someone in this weird little community, you get networked and sucked in. And then before you know it, all these organizations are asking if you are available for this mission or to submit your availability for this other mission and stuff like that. Very true. Yep. Um, So for me, in terms of global health, um, I actually was finishing my um, bachelor's of nursing Um, and was working full-time as an ER nurse, which is three 12-hour shifts a week, and finishing my BSN, I felt all of a sudden I had all this free time on my hands and was kind of bored. And um, so it was the beginning of the 2014 Ebola crisis, and I put my application out to USAID, and I was accepted by an NGO um, and signed on for six weeks and ended up staying for two years in West Africa. Um, and so that's kind of how this whole thing has started for me. Um, and now um, I'm getting multiple master's degrees in the field, um, helping to continue. That's awesome. And um, one of the the reasons we brought you on today that we wanted to hear from you is uh, I one of your coworkers, I guess, Rebecca, reached out to me and said, you should really be talking about Uh, sex and gender-based violence in the DRC, which is something that both of you um, have experience with, have seen firsthand. Um, Could you give us sort of a, for for listeners, maybe a 101 of what's going on there? Yes, but sort of before we jump into that, I think it would be good to preface this with, you know, like for us, we were just kind of there for like a two-week thing. Like this isn't our reality and we're not, you know, like the experts on it by any means. There are certainly a lot more people who are more qualified to speak about it than us. Um, So we're just kind of coming at it with the perspective of, you know, like a two-week medical mission volunteer type of point of view, if that makes any sense. Right. That's why you were sent there, right? It's sort of a mission to to understand the the scope of the problem perhaps. Okay. Mm Mm-hmm. So, and Kim, obviously, feel free to jump in uh, whenever you like. 
the original sort of idea for the mission, um, like when this idea was birthed, was that we would go in for some kind of healthcare assessment and see where the gaps are um, in sort of like the healthcare infrastructure in South Kivu. And this was something that um, Godox has done in other countries. So like earlier in the year, we did something similar for Ethiopia. Um, but our local partner that we were working with, um, it's called Suffico, and it's this French acronym that I'm not going to try to pronounce because I'll mess it up. But it basically works with like these local girls and women and empowering them, giving them skills, sort of like navigating the social landscape of being a woman in DRC. So we kind of approached it with maybe like kind of focusing on um, SGBV, which is like sexual gender-based violence. But obviously we didn't really know what we would find until we actually got on the ground and started doing our assessment. Kim, yeah. do you have anything to add? Yeah, no, I was just going to go further from that. And then, you know, once we arrived on the ground and realized um, there are quite a lot of people, as Coco said, that are much more experienced in this and actually doing a lot of work in um uh, SGBV, um, which is the sexual gender-based violence area, including Dr. Mukwege, who's there in um, Bukavu, who's won the Nobel Prize, and he's there doing all the like physical problems. So um, we realized that the mental health issues um, related to both the SGBV and the ongoing war in um, the DRC were how global outreach doctors could add some support to the area. Yeah, so I think one of the key issues that like became like immediately urgently apparent was that there was kind of like no psychosocial support for all of these like women or just victims of SGBV in general. I mean, God knows it doesn't have to be female, but like I think the statistics are right now something like 0.8 like psychologists for like 100,000 people in Congo. And I think when we were there, there was maybe like one psychologist that was working in the entire South Kivu area. So this was like a completely kind of like foreign territory uh, for I think the healthcare providers there. Um, and even in some of the interviews that we were doing, it's like, you know, what are you doing after your assault to kind of help you get over this? And a lot of the answers we got were just, oh, you know, maybe some support group or sometimes I can talk to my friends. But it was just like a complete lack of this particular support. Even so much so that the providers didn't realize that this was an issue. People would show up to the hospitals and our clinics complaining of kind of generalized body aches or just not. Hypertension was another big one. Yeah. Um, and really, if you dialed down, you found out that there was some trauma, whether it was SGBV or related to the war. Um, doesn't really matter. It was just a trauma. And really, the the underlying problem was the mental health issues that nobody had been addressing there at all in any way. Um, they don't have the medicines available. They have very limited um, support. The women don't really feel like they can even discuss it with each other very much. Um, and certainly um, across gender lines, there's really no discussion on this problem. Yeah, um, when we were doing the research for this, there were just so, so, so many stories, um, so many women who were talking about it. And I do think that it's something that um, we don't think about a lot is the the mental trauma. Like people who've experienced it do. But if, if you haven't, then it just doesn't occur to people that this is a huge gap, that that would cause all these other things. Yeah. And I think in sort of that region in general, I mean, I, I think people kind of treat it as like a tired or talked out topic almost, you know, like 
it's known that DRC is like the rig capital of the world just because of its like violent recent history. Um, but also like this issue has been eclipsed by a lot of other issues, you know, like the M23 rebellion or like the recent Ebola crisis. Like this has sort of kind of become like a back burner topic. Um, and even when I was coming off of the mission and reaching out to some of my journalist friends to see if there might be potential interest um, on writing about kind of like what's going on with these women, sort of like how years, decades after these conflicts, like there has been no respite for them. And the response has been, you know, there there will be no interest for such an article. It's like a talked out issue. Um, it, I don't know. It's just like very sad. That is so disappointing that it, something can be talked out when it's people's lives that we're talking yeah. about and how they are affected on a daily basis in such an awful, traumatic way. That's really saddening. <laughs> Yeah, uh, and that does actually bring me to a question I was going to ask later, but since it's a good segue, um, how, what ways do you think the media could improve when talking about this, and um, what ways have they failed, which might dovetail into each other, probably? Oh, um, <laughs> like in Congo in general, or kind of like sexual violence as a, a broad topic? Both, honestly. Both, yeah. Um, and Kim, if you don't mind, I'll start with sort of like a, a personal experience. So actually, um, before this Congo mission, I was in Ethiopia on a different mission, and I was actually sexually assaulted by an Ethiopian local there. Um, and it's like still an ongoing issue that I'm dealing with a lawyer in Ethiopia to try and see this case through, even though like, you know, despite not being in Ethiopia, which is a complete nightmare. And... I had just like reaching out to some of like the local newspapers to see if there might be interest in sort of like outing this guy that lives among their midst and is a well-known sexual assaulter and, you know, like thief of like foreign tourists. Um, I got like zero response. Um, and I think it's just like, it's not popular news or it's like talked out news. Like I was saying before, like, oh, another person got assaulted. What were they thinking? You know? Or the other end of the spectrum is, like, who who cares about that? Like, that's so, like, a non-issue. <laughs> and that I guess that's sort of like Ethiopian media. I, I can't really make a broad comment about, like, U.S. media without writing a book about it or I guess how much time we have to talk about <laughs> like, two, three hours. <laughs> Kim, what, what, what thoughts do you have? I don't know. I don't have really great thoughts on, on that um, too much, really. Um, it is a huge topic and there's, um, you know, so many different parts of it, right? That, you know, people need to be feel free to address their issues and recognize that there are issues. We also need to recognize that it's a problem in the world. Um, but, um, you know, our, our DRC mission um, was kind of more focusing on how can we get the local providers to help recognize that this is a problem and then treat it as such. I do kind of just want to add also, um, and this really hit hard for me when I was asked this question. So one of the local women, I can't remember which one of us did her interview, um, but she was asking like, so are you, she, she, you know, like recounted for us, like her, probably her worst moment in her life, like talking about her sexual assault. I think she was gang raped or something. Um, and then she was like, so are you going to do something? Like, are you going to like help me with it? And, you know, we had to give her a very painful answer of like, no, we're, we're here for the assessment. Like all we can do right now is collect your story. And it kind of, 
like reminds me of the times that like I've worked in other refugee camps or in like vulnerable populations where my job wasn't not as a journalist, but even as like a humanitarian worker, my job was to collect their stories um, or like turn them into data and numbers. And, you know, in the same vein that journalists just turn them into like names and words on a page. But for them, that's like their lives, like they're telling you their worst moments and then not knowing if they'll ever kind of see any recourse from the information they give you. And even if it does, you know, it could take years, months, what have you. And I just think that's like a very painful thing for them. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I know a lot of cases go unreported because there is a fear of of retaliation or just almost like, well, <laughs> it's going to be painful and I don't know what I'll get out of it. Yeah, um, yeah. That's very true. Um, and But the other part of this is the problem with, um, you know, Western um, medical missions kind of issue of, you know, like we show up and then, you know, the white doctors are there and everybody wants to get seen and because we're going to solve the day. And that's not the way that this is going to, the world is going to get better. The world's going to get better by um, empowering locals to do the work, the same work. All right. Because we are not the, you know, all powerful people. Um, we are just the same as everybody else. Right. And I just, I just yeah. want to add like one last point. Like one, I, I just like recalled an instance where I was working um, in a, like a refugee camp uh, in Jordan, and this group of I forget which newspaper they were working for, but they they wanted to come in and interview the children, and they were working on like a specific topic. Like their question was, like, what do you dream about? And like in sort of organizing this and watching how the children failed to comprehend this question because they were just like, what do you mean what we dream about? Like we dream about our old homes, like being at home, like we left our houses. Like, um, And I think that's kind of where maybe Western media fails a little bit is like taking these questions that we think our audiences are would be interested in, but are completely out of context for the population that they're trying to interview. And I, I don't know if I'm like articulating this correctly, but like that question was like so out in left field for those refugees. Like they were like, I don't even understand what you're asking. But for us audiences, like a Western audience is like, oh, what do you dream about? It's like such a high like consciousness, like surreal topic that for them, you know, they can't even get food or water. Like what does it matter what they dream about? Right. Yeah, I think that's perfect, Coco. Yeah. Well, now you got me two questions I need to ask. <laughs> <laughs> You're putting so much out here. Um, the first question I did want to ask is how many, did you have a lot of uh, women that were willing to come forward? Um, was it easy to obtain that information? Because obviously they probably are, interact with, again, uh, groups of people that come through trying to get and assess and or maybe try to help or not. How often would you have pushback and how often would you have like a flood of people coming in? Yes, I want to talk. I want you to know what's happening. I think we had mostly like floods of people who are willing to talk to us, but I think it was more under the assumption that we were there to do something or like fix it. Yeah, no, I agree. And um, working with our partner Safeco, um, they kind of, um, you know, said, hey, they're coming and they want to talk to you. And so we would have, you know, hundreds of people there in the morning um, that wanted to talk to us and, and were willing. But again, the problem was that we really could do very, very little for them right. at that point. And some of them like walked from nearby villages, like just to be seen. Wow. Um, and I mean, we, we did hold, you know, like clinical hours where like we did clinical work, like we asked them what their ailments were and then we, you know, had sent them to our little 
uh, traveling pharmacy. Um, but, you know, by and large for like this huge, large behemoth of an issue of like SGBV, like we really could only just talk to them. Right. And that was really sad. Yeah. And that could be, especially if you're in the medical field and you want to fix things <laughs> as well. Um, and then the other part was, as you were talking about people coming in and, and this westernized idea, one of the big issues that I've had for so long when it comes to mission trips and we, we know like Western civilization saying we're going to go fix things. I want to go to Africa, the whole white savior complex. How often have you been running into that? And can you kind of speak on the damages oh, that that can constantly. do? <laughs> constantly. And I think, so like, it, it's really sexy, I think, for organizations to be like, oh, we're going to go for two weeks and like do this thing. And these are our benchmarks, key performance indicators, how many people serve, how, you know, how much drug supplies we delivered. But like there's very rarely kind of a plan for sustainability because, you know, that's a long term investment. It requires money. It, it requires like investments, in energy, like supplies and stuff could be like years, whatever. And I think a lot of organizations just don't have the capability for that type of long-term vision. And it's not necessarily their fault, right? Like, you know, we're volunteer organizations, we're by nature limited in the scope and our funding. I think lacking this makes this kind of industry sort of very myopic uh, in its application because when we arrived in some of these places, they were like, oh, so you brought us drugs, right? Like you're here to see our patients so our doctors don't have to work for the days that you're here. Like they really just expect you to do this work for them and then they'll just go back to life as normal. And then another group will come do that work and then they'll go back to life as normal. Hmm. Yeah, no, I completely agree with that um, on all sides, right? Um, because, you know, as the, the Westerners going, you know, people think, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to go help for two weeks. Um, but that's really just barely a bandaid, right? Um, and really what needs to happen is a longer term solution. I mean, and of course there are emergency situations two weeks is perfect, right? Like a typhoon or a hurricane or an earthquake, you know, that that's no problem. You can do that acute care. But for the most part, you need longer term care. And, you know, that's why Global Outreach Doctors has been able to, um, you know, connect with these 30 plus, you know, psych advisors from the United States to start doing some education um, in the Congo um, with the providers that have joined us as part of our um, DRC group. Um, so that helps. Yeah. So I think like what makes sort of our outlook on this Congo mission a little bit unique is like we are trying to implement like a much longer term plan um, and not necessarily in terms of like sending teams over and over again, but sort of like empowering the like the local providers to like take charge and ownership of like their own healthcare system. Like we've with like Suffico um, and like our local partners have helped, you know, nominate these community champions who could potentially apply this clinical psychology training to their own communities and like hold workshops for their own people instead of, you know, having these Muzungu doctors come in and speak to them and then leave for two weeks. Um, and I think sort of if this idea could be more widely adapted by other organizations, um, it could really like change the face of humanitarian work. Mm. Yeah, definitely. And um, I mean, I remember one example for me was um, we were inundated with hundreds of people wanting to be seen. And I was kind of doing my ER nurse triage. And there was one lady I was completely concerned about um, and said, you know, she has to come next. She just was not acting right in any way. And I 
didn't really know what was going on in terms of... Oh, this was the one that fainted in the middle of the line. No, 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 not that lady. This is actually... Oh, so many stories. <laughs> yeah. But, um, and so I said, you know, we have to see her next. And, and all the locals just came up to me and said, oh, no, no, don't worry about her. She's just crazy. You know, and um, they kept saying... Oh, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. I remember She's just crazy. Um, and we, I finally got... I pulled her in next to be seen, right? So she kind of skipped ahead in the line because she definitely looked the, the sickest in the line. Um, and as an ER nurse, that's what I'm used to doing is mm -hmm. picking the, the worst. And, um, you know, and, and it became quite obvious that she was schizophrenic um, and, you know, was having some major problems. And we don't know why, because she's just not able to communicate in that way at all at that point. Um, but, but more than getting her any help, it was the other... Congolese realizing that like she was a real person and did have real problems. It wasn't just, oh, she's crazy and we can leave her there. Mm -hmm. um, and we all get to get seen because, you know, we have um, some other issues that, you know, those are the major issues that need to get dealt with. Right. But I mean, you think about it in sort of their point of view, like how often does a person get dismissed for just like being a little off or like crazy, but mm -hmm. it's actually like they, they might they may be having like PTSD or like some really serious underlying medical mm -hmm. issue that they just, you know, get brushed off as like, oh, she's crazy. Don't worry about her or, you right. know, whatever. Right. Yeah. Um, one of the first episodes we did together, we did a mini series on trauma when we first started. Um, so we've, we've talked about those kind of health, those negative health outcomes that can be associated with it. A lot of the stories I read, just seeing like things like STIs and pregnancy and all these just things um, that sort of... Yeah. Yeah. I mean, women used to get burned for existing pretty much. Right. I mean, that was definitely one of our big conversations. And that's... Um, I've been in social work before this world. And one of the things that Georgia and the U.S. has finally started talking about is trauma-based an evidence-based therapy instead of just diagnosing with random things here and there and saying, oh, that's just their behavior, understanding a majority of their diagnosis and their yeah. behavior is due to trauma. And yeah. knowing that that's only starting now <laughs> for the U.S., can't imagine what that looks like for the rest of the world. Kim, do you remember that one patient? She was like an elderly lady and she came to us like genuinely fearing for her life because she was like ostracized by her village because some kind of like sexual trauma happened to her. And then I think she had a family member die. So then her village like thought she was a witch or something. Oh, wow. And then she was like ostracized in her tent. Like people don't approach her. Um, like sometimes they threw stones at her. Like, do you remember that one? And she was like begging us, like, please help us. Like, I can't stay here. I'm, I'm going to die. Like they're going to kill me. Oh, yeah. Wow. Um, I remember that. And I, and I think that that's, I mean, that wasn't the only time I heard that, you know, after some sexual based violence happens that then you're considered, you know, um, ostracized. Um, yeah. Untouchable. Right. Yeah. I mean, even so much so that the children of rape cannot go to the normal schools, oh, wow. you know, have to, um, you know, are, are the also ostracized. So it's a, it's a continual process. Obviously. Oh, yeah. And so we had, we had this one like super young teenage girl. Um, she was gang raped and then to the point that she had like a rectal anal fistula um, and she like did not speak for I think two years and e even at like our interview like she refused to say anything to us like yeah. she I think her mother or her aunt or something like talked for her and recounted her experience and she was just like catatonic like zero affect mm -hmm. um 
yeah, it was it was really depressing. <laughs> yes, yes, um, I, I think that we're going to backtrack a little bit just to get all the information. But can you, because you've said it a few times, and obviously it's what we were with the. Uh, can you explain Global Outreach Doctors and what it does and what its mission is? Sure. So Global Outreach Doctors, uh, we are a nonprofit medical organization. Um, we send volunteer teams of healthcare providers to, you know, like high needs, low resource areas, parts of the world. And our missions range from like healthcare augmentation to like various responses to like assessments, really. So I can name a few like recent ones. Um, obviously, this Congo one, it was a healthcare assessment. Um, we did... Uh, another assessment in the Gondor Mountain region in Ethiopia last year. Um, we also went on, like, supplied volunteers for, there was a U.S. Southcom Navy trip in and around the Caribbean and South America sort of to help out with, like, the Venezuelan refugee crisis and all the IDPs and refugees that were displaced from that conflict. Um, we've also, like, sent people to Mosul in 2007 during the anti-ISIS offensives, Currently, we're like working on uh, a project to support the dengue fever outbreak in like the Marshall Islands. So, I mean, there's a variety of missions that we're involved in, and they're not always sort of like in the same sphere. Um, but I think in general, we're sort of moving more towards like this long-term sustainable development, like local empowerment type. Whereas, I think a lot of our like peer organizations sort of are more into like the quick in, quick out, like high speed, low drag type of like two week patch, 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 and then get out type missions. Mm -hmm. Oh, and if you're interested in more information, obviously we have our website, shameless plug. It's <laughs> www.globaloutreachdoctors.org. Awesome. Normal spelling. <laughs> <laughs> we love shameless plugs. It's great. That's exactly what we need. Yes. <laughs> uh, okay. So going back to, to this mission in the DRC, could you get what was kind of a general just day like there? And then what data did you end up with? If you can have, is there any like analysis or for, like from what age to what age? How many women did you sure. see or people? I can talk a little bit more about like the day-to-day -day stuff because I manage the logistics and then I'll kick it over to Kim to talk about the data stuff because she was definitely more involved with that part. Um, I wouldn't say that we had any day in like the two weeks and some extra days mission that were the same. Like every day was either moving from one place to another or seeing patients at this one place or getting ready to go to another place. At one point, like we had questions about our security because the area we were going into, you know, there's been known rebel activity and violence in that area. Um, so then we had to take a flight in, but then it had to be like a Monusco helicopter because like the charter flight canceled. So then our team got split. Um, so then like the people who had flights out of Rwanda really early went on the UN helicopter, but the rest of us were like stuck in this enemy surrounded mountain village for like a few days with oh, no wow. internet. I don't know if you've ever seen like this movie called like the tears of the sun, but one of my security contractor friends, when I told him about it, he was like, Coco, that's literally the plot. <laughs> tears of the sun. Like if you were there for a few more days and I didn't hear from you, like we would have sent several bearded men to go rescue you guys. <laughs> um, I mean, obviously it didn't come to that. Um, I mean, it, it was a beautiful place to be stranded and like the locals treated us like family and it, it was amazing every day dealing with some aspect of the logistics of being in that part of the world. 
Um, yeah. So then um, uh, talking about the data, so um, we did um, assessments in all the different hospitals or clinics that we went to on um, both depression and mental health. Um, so the the um, scoring systems we used were the PHQ-2 um, and PHQ-9, which are both regularly used in the United States for depression. And we also use something called the Refugee Health Screening 15, um, which has obviously been studied only for refugees and or traumatized patients. So people would come to us and we would say, are you, know, are you a refugee or do you have some serious trauma? And if they said yes, then we would use that RHS 15. If they said no, then we would just use the PHQ-2. And if the PHQ-2 is positive, then you move on to the PHQ-9. So obviously- Sorry to add that like refugee is a broad term also like including IDPs because a lot yes. of these internally just people, you know, moved around DRC because of like nearby violence and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah, that's very true. Sorry, continue. No, that thanks. Um, so, but most people said yes to the um, been either a refugee IDP or had some severe trauma, and so we would score them on the um, RHS 15. And a hundred percent of the people that we used that on scored positive um, for severe trauma. And then the PHQ. I remember, like at one point, you like ask you got to question four and then just like didn't bother asking the rest of the question because you were like oh they're positive let's move on yeah very true yeah we were so overwhelmed and so busy with so many people that I didn't we didn't always get to every single question because once somebody was positive had a a positive score for it then I was just like they're positive I don't care for the rest of the questions and we just need to get them to some assistance if we can Um, and really again this was more about teaching the local providers um, that these are important questions to ask on every single patient because you don't know if the lady who shows up with belly pain is really there because she has um, some mental health issue um, rather than just you know giving her some medicine for her supposed belly pain and sending her on her way. Um, so that was, I think, the big learning experience. And for me, sitting with um, local nurses and teaching them how to ask these questions appropriately and realizing why it was important was really the highlight, you know, getting to know these nurses and getting them to understand that this is important to their community and how they can help their community. Yeah, and I think so. We also did like gendered focus groups. Um, and obviously we had larger groups of women who were involved with these focus groups than like the men's groups. But like even being able to explain to them, like, you know, in like in a safe like crowd setting that like not all of your symptoms are because you're sick. Like you're, you could be like somaticizing your psychological issues. And I think a lot of that, a lot of them just didn't know that that was a thing. So, you know, you might not have headaches because you have a brain tumor or something. You could be having headaches just because you have psychological trauma and it's manifesting as this physical issue. Right. What was the um, age range of of people you saw? A Um, wide range. Very wide. Yeah. I mean, you know, I I would say it was the entire range. I mean, in terms of SGBV, obviously the babies weren't, you know, nobody mentioned that, although we, I think we had four-year-olds or stuff with SGBV, but we certainly saw, you know, babies with malnutrition and malaria and other things, but then all the way to as old as, as possible. I mean, like definitely post-menopausal age. Um, and like they, you know, whatever age range, like they had legit questions. Like there were elderly ladies who asked us questions about like, what to do about certain sexual situations, like just as like the young ones do. 
Um, and you know, mothers who are asking like, what should I do for my six year old daughter who was gang raped? Like so and, and one lady, so like, she didn't ask this to me. She asked my colleague. So like her question was, so like, what can you, what advice can you give us, you know, as a Congolese woman in this environment? Like, what can I do? And our, so our colleague answered this question and I wasn't there, but to maybe you were like, she handled it very well. Like, and, Cause I, I definitely, I would not have had any idea what to say. Um, but she was like, you know, I know your situation looks really bleak, um, but it's important to have this kind of solidarity, feel open with each other and support each other. I can't like replicate her super eloquent answer, but it, it was just like a lot of those types of questions that made you turn your head a little bit and do a double take on yourself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I sort of going off of that, I, um, a lot of news media call the DRC like, you know, the rape capital of the world or the most dangerous place uh, for a woman. And I did read a lot of articles from written by Congolese women who are saying like, yes, the situation is really bad, but there's also a lot yeah. of sisterhood and solidarity and strength here and resilience. Yeah. Do you have... Well, one of like the enlightening eye-opening things I think we encountered was how many kind of like just informal women's support groups there were, right? Because like one of the questions we asked on these like interviews was like, um, so what are some activities uh, that you do to kind of like seek support? And I think most of them said that there's some kind of like a local like community, like women's group that they go to. But obviously the issue is like the if there was a leader for these groups, you know, they're not really trained in clinical psychology. They might not be giving out appropriate advice. But I mean, there was like what I felt was like this hunger for like something better or like something to improve the current situation with within this like gender meeting group support group thing. Would you agree, Kim? Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, there seemed to be a lot, um, you know, and I don't think that there has to be some like really specific training. I think, you know, just sometimes, you know, sitting down and, and listening to each other is all that's really needed mm-hmm. and and having that ability to say, hey, I have had these problems. But the problem with that in the Congo, what I was told was that then, you know, then you become a victim for, you know, more violence because you have ostracized yourself of, you know, talk with other women sort of thing. So that's it. Or actually, I can't remember which religion it was, but like someone was telling us how um, she was being targeted because she was like championing this effort. And then that was kind of like a target on her back because she was sort of sticking her neck out on behalf of these other women. Right. Well, we even had that one woman who had been just attacked and macheted um, uh, just, you know, in the last week because she was a um, a champion for it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, But the other part of that I also want to mention is I mean, although, you know, going back to the Western media kind of um, question is, although it's important to discuss all of these things and realize that this is happening in the world, I think it's also important to discuss how beautiful and great the Congo is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I loved it there. Um, recently, I was asked, where's my favorite place in the world? And I said, Bukavu, um, which is in South Kivu, Congo. Um, I really, really enjoyed the country. It was beautiful. The people were amazing. And so, you know, I think we need to also realize that good things happen in these places. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just not all the trauma and badness. And I think some yeah. of the stuff is forgotten. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So actually, two things I want to add to that. 
where I think back to your question about where media fails, I think we're so eager to highlight all of these like negative problems and paint this like shocking picture, almost kind of, you know, like people stopping on the side of the road to stare at this grotesque accident. But like, I don't think we do enough to sort of highlight all these amazing initiatives that are coming out of this place. Like, telling stories of these champions who are like willingly making themselves a target in order to stand up for their sisters or, you know, these amazing women in these communities um, who are empowering like the local girls to do this thing or, you know, like being the person that they can go to or like providing housing and like a safe place for other women to speak up. I don't think we do enough to highlight those stories. And then the second thing is I'm going to make a shameless plug for tourism in yes. Congo because I got to go to Virunga Park, um, the Kahuzi Viega Park. And also as part of the Virunga Park trip, I got to hike uh, near Algogo Volcano, which is the largest persistent lava lake volcano in the world. Wow. Um, and I have been to a lot of African countries and I have never experienced amazing hospitality at the level that I experienced it when I did my Virunga Niragongo trip. Like the tourism industry there is really, really starving for tourists and for obvious reasons, you know, the violence, like the people, they know that people don't want to go there. So when they have tourists who, you know, are, I guess, crazy or brave enough to visit there, they're like, they express their gratitude in such a genuine, almost heartbreaking way that like, I don't know, like I bought a stuffed gorilla, even though I, I like rarely buy souvenirs. I bought a stuffed gorilla just because it supports like the local community there. Cause like the women there, they make it and they, you know, the money goes back to the rangers who protect the gorillas and stuff. So it's, you know, your audience, whomever's listening, like, Visit Congo. It's perfectly safe. You will have an amazing trip and the hospitality there is amazing and you will not regret it. Like literally I was within feet distance of the gorillas and it was like a spectacular experience. And sorry, I forgot no, to go add for that. It. it is much cheaper to do this like gorilla trek uh, in Congo than Rwanda, for example. So like my entire four-day itinerary for the Virunga Park and the Nyiragongo Volcano cost maybe like $1,400. Whereas in Rwanda, just the permit, the trekking permit itself costs $1,500, not including accommodations and transportations and all that. So it is very like cost, like your value for money, you definitely get more bang for your buck if you do this in Congo. (laughs) All right, there we go. Side note. So yeah, I love this. We've got two shameless plugs. Um, and then off of that, what else can listeners do um, if they're interested in, in helping out in any way, supporting any way, um, the situation in DRC? Well, I mean, certainly um, GoDocs always needs um, support. So both um, volunteers <laughs> and in terms of financial support. So you're welcome to visit our website. Again, globaloutreachdoctors.org. Um, but it doesn't. It doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be us. You know, like if you're passionate about a particular issue, like there, I'm sure there's no shortage of organizations that are working on that issue. Um, I would say, like, do your research. I always try to support like sort of more grassroots local organizations than like large international ones, like ICRC or Red Cross, just because like I want my money to go where I want it to go, as opposed to like overhead. Um, and if you can find, if you do your research in a particular area or issue that you're interested in, you find an organization that works in it, you know, I would just reach out to them. Maybe 
you are you maybe you run a podcast that could <laughs> highlight some of these issues. There you go. Um, if we you have it. deep pockets, you know, like oh, you know, yeah. money goes a long way in parts of the world like that. Mm-hmm. And also, if you have skills and would like to volunteer, you know, like GoDogs and some of the other organizations I work with, we're always looking for like volunteers who can come on and join us on these trips. Um, so there's there's definitely an abundance of ways to get involved. Yeah, and it's just important to realize what's important to you and how you want to use your time and resources um, in terms of, you know, do you want to work on saving gorillas? Do you, you know, want to help with SGBV? I mean, there's thousands and thousands of different groups out there who each help in their own little teeny way. Yeah, and also I think just like keeping the conversation alive goes a long way too. As a society, there are certain topics that we kind of shy away from talking about just because it makes people uncomfortable or whatever. Sometimes when I mention instances of like sexual assault that happened to me, like a lot of my guy friends are like, what? That happens? And it's like, yes, I'm a woman. (laughs) Um, But like, you know, keeping that topic alive, like bringing awareness to it, not just as people who live in the West, but like, you know, did you know that in Congo, blah, blah, blah happens or in this other part of the world, blah, blah, blah happens. I'm like, what are we doing about it? You know, if, if you keep it in someone's, you know, like the back of someone's mind, like, and they happen to be in a position where they can do something like influence policy in any way, you, you really never know when some of these topics and connections may come in handy. Yeah, I mean, and another part that reminded me is um, Eve Ensler with um, Vagina Monologues. It came out of the DRC. Um, that's where she originally worked with Dr. Mukwege. So, I mean, even that has expanded the conversation a little bit. Awesome, yeah. Um, so one of the things we, we ask, as you've been sharing what, what you do, it's, I can I would say it's very stressful or can be very stressful perhaps. What are things you do to take care of yourselves? <laughs> Actually, so I I'm not very good at this. My strategy for coping is just to keep myself as busy as possible <laughs> to the point where I don't have any time to dwell. Um, so like I finished my contract in Afghanistan a few weeks ago. And since then, I've just like been on the road nonstop. And in fact, I'm calling you from Moldova right now. Yes, um, and we appreciate and that. Day, <laughs> yeah, and the day after tomorrow, I'll be doing a medical, like a polar medical training thing in Norway. And then I'll go back to the U.S. And then literally the day after I get back, I, I, um, I go straight to work. So my strategy, which personally works for me, but I can't prescribe to anyone else, is that I keep myself literally so busy that I don't have any time to dwell on anything else. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I think this is a huge problem, um, you know, uh, with medical professionals even in the United States, even that don't, you know, adventure to any other place. And so I think that's another huge topic that needs to be discussed, you know, because I don't think we do a very good job as a culture. Um, I certainly spent 20 years in the emergency room and reached a burnout phase and um, and had to leave bedside nursing for a while because of that problem. So, you know, recognizing that it is a real thing, that it affects everybody, um, and it may not hit you on the call or the situation or the mission that you think it's going to, but, you know, something else it's going to hit you then. Um, so recognizing it, and just as we suggested with, you know, the women in the DRC, King, I think it's important for us to talk that it happens to yeah. everyone. And absolutely, I think, so 
you know, we should normalize conversation about these types of issues. Like people are not comfortable talking about the state of their mental health because they're like, oh, if I mention that I'm having, you know, feeling down or suicide, whatever, like, are my friends going to call the cops on us or whatever? Because I've, I've certainly had that happen to my friends and I've even had it happen to me, you know, but like, I think we should be more open about talking about these things and we shouldn't sort of like assume everyone who talks about it is in some kind of dire emergency state. Maybe they just want someone to vent to. Maybe they just needed to get this off their chest. And if you just listen to them, it was like, yeah, dude, like that freaking sucks. No, I mean, that makes perfect sense. Cause you know, I know that I walked into the ER one day to work and um, was crying hysterically and told a friend, you know, I, I want to kill myself right now. Um, and so then of course it became a huge issue. And, and as she said, you know, police and all that were involved and yeah. um, it was just I was burnt out and could no longer watch yeah. the you know parade of car accidents and gun shooting victims come in the door any yeah. longer. I actually so like I joke about sort of maybe like some people consider morbid, but like I joke about sort of morbid topics a lot. Like I recently made a post that was like, does anyone get this feeling where it's like I'm not trying to actively kill myself, but like if I walked on a grenade. Or, you know, if I stepped on a landmine or a grenade landed in my lap, I wouldn't exactly be mad. Um, and, like, a ton of people actually, like, messaged me privately. I was like, dude, yeah, I know exactly how you feel. And I think so many of us, it's, it's not that we're necessarily just, like, suicidal. But we have these kind of like self-destructive, nihilistic feelings. And we have no outlet for it because we're so afraid of being ousted. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree, Yeah. We've talked about that many, many, many times on this show. Burnout, and sp- sure, yeah. especially especially in the medical profession. Yeah. So yeah, normalizing it is definitely something we should be doing, and hopefully we're moving that way. <laughs> okay. So what are now that you've done this assessment mission? What are the next steps? What happens now? So now we have um, the 30 plus advisor group that are medical professionals, mostly psychiatrists from, you know, places like Harvard, Columbia, Mount Sinai, um, other prestigious universities and medical centers that are doing telehealth um, education mm-hmm. providers in the DRC to help them learn um, how to address some issues. We're trying to gather a supply of medicines to provide them also, but that's you know a little bit harder, but um, at least teaching them how to assess, um, diagnose, and then treat um, people at a very basic level. Yeah, I think so our long-term goal with this project is to sort of like be able to build up the local indigenous capacity, like help them help themselves, like teach the trainer or train the trainer initiatives, if you will. Um, And with these like weekly or monthly engagements, hopefully we can build up the capacity and then those people can take their training to other communities and be able to deliver that information there. And, you know, it, it is a bit of a lofty goal, um, in a place like Congo, but we're, I think, pretty optimistic about it. And, you know, of course, there's always uh, the potential for future teams to go, um, particularly like working in clinical psychology, like a little more on hands training, like bringing up these community champions um, and giving them not only like the in-person tools that they need, but maybe also sort of like some of the clinical knowledge, like uh, prescriptions or like pharmacology, stuff like that. That brings us to the end of our interview, but we do have a little bit more for you listeners. But first, we have one more quick break for a word from our sponsor. 
And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. And we did want to end on some positive things on the horizon for the DRC that will hopefully improve the sex and gender-based violence going on there. One thing is getting more women in positions of power. To that end, in 2015, a group of NGOs and their local partners formed a movement called Nothing Without the Women to advocate for the Parity Act to get more women involved in all aspects of public life, although it did not come with specifics, and to push for a law that required at least one woman be listed on electoral ballots or the ballot cannot be registered. They received over 200,000 signatures. After a march that drew more than 6,000 people, the Parity Act was signed that same year. Which is awesome. So just a little history of the Congolese women in politics. So Congolese women are not effectively represented and have never really participated in the governance of the country since 1960, which is the year of the independence of the country. No woman has ever been head of state or head of government slash prime minister, which neither have they in the U.S., so there's nope. that. Hmm. Um, and there are a lot of reasons behind the lack of participation from women, including the mere family responsibility and sometimes the general fear in running for leadership. Although women constituted 63% of the DRC electorate, the current overall representation of women is only 7.2% in the high positions of recently established institutions, parliament as well as in the government. The DRC government, National Assembly, and major institutions are all essentially run by men. Ironically, several of the organizations that are for women and support women are largely run by men as well. And according to sources right now, there is no woman member of the Office of the Senate, and there's only one woman among the seven members of the Office of the National Assembly. Out of the 108 senators, there are only six women. There are 43 elected women out of 500 elected members of the DRC National Assembly. Out of the 45 members of the government, there are only five women, of which four ministers and one vice minister. And there's no woman governor or vice governor of the 11 current provinces of the republic. Getting more women in politics is really important for several reasons, several things we touched on. One being a finding from the International Peace Institute that when women are included in peace talks, the chance of lasting peace goes up by 35%. Mm -hmm. And also having women spearhead these movements or laws around women's issues just kind of makes sense. Right. And as we know, as we were having the interview with both Kim and Coco, there are women that are gathering together. Oh, yes. And it's incredible what you can see when women gather together. So hopefully we'll see even bigger progress. Shoot, they may exceed us on some (laughs) levels. Absolutely. And we wanted to end on this quote from Justine Masika Biamba from The Guardian. We do not see ourselves as the rape capital of the world. Instead, I agree with Liberia's Nobel Prize laureate, Lima Gwubi, who called my nation the world capital of sisterhood and solidarity. Congolese women have decided to take our future into our hands. We have few resources, but we have an enormous amount of know-how. It really does seem like they do. Yes. Just in the conversations and the glowing love that Coco and Kim had for their community, that sounds like a powerful, powerful group of women. Very much so. And it was so worthwhile to to have this conversation. We would love to have further conversations. Um, I know frequently we focus on the United States because we're based in the United States. Right. But we don't want to be limited in that scope. So, yes, email us, send us suggestions of what issues around the world we should be talking about. And you can send those to our email at stuffmediamomstuff at iheartmedia.com. You can also find us on social media, on Twitter at Podcast or on Instagram 
at Stuff Mom Never Told You. Thanks as always to our super producer, Andrew Howard. Thank you. Thanks to our guest, Kim and Coco. Thank you. And thanks to you for listening. Thank you. Stuff Mom Never Told You is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 